right. How's everybody doing? You guys doing all right? How about you guys in live stream land? Y'all doing okay? Give me a digital blip or something. Okay. All right. Fantastic. Good. Well, so we are continuing our current study series this morning. Uh, it's called Fake News, and we've been going kind of week by week, um, really kind of taking on some ideas, some thoughts, or maybe some unthoughts that are just kind of out there in, in the ether, kind of out there in culture, um, commonly held, commonly believed. Some of these are um, ideas that are common among our Christian subculture. Some of these are just ideas that are um, out in culture more broadly, uh, widely held, widely agreed upon, maybe even kind of taken for granted, at least in certain uh, segments. And so, but we're kind of slowing down and asking the question, okay, yeah, but is that true? Is that really reliable? And so that's what we've been doing for the last several weeks. This is part five, so I guess we're five weeks um, into this. And so here is fake news item for today. Real Christians vote like me. I see some smiles, I hear some laughter, and I also sense some tension, maybe just a little bit. Okay, so we could say the title different ways. I mean, that's the way I, I wrote the title, just for a little, you know, because it's a title, needs to have some edge. Um, we could say it, maybe the same thing, slightly differently. Um, real Christians all vote the same way. That's, that's the idea that we're taking on. Or we could say it like this, which wouldn't have all, at all worked for a sermon title, uh, but the idea being that there is a predefined way that real Christians vote, right? So that's, that's really what we're, um, what we're taking on today. Okay, so it's fake news. Don't you believe it? It's out there. Um, it's held by many. Sometimes it is, well, actually, it, uh, from time to time, this idea is stated this explicitly. Um, most of the time, though, I would, I would argue that um, it's more or less kind of um, implied between the lines. But um, certainly there are, there are those who would say it just, just that uh, overtly. And, of course, we are in an election season here in the United States. And so this is um, timely in that regard. So, uh, but it's fake news. It's fake news. And let me just, let me just begin kind of with the broadest kind of, at least my attempt at the broadest kind of starting point. Um, the vision for the church of Jesus Christ is that it is a diverse family of people from across every segment of society. Not only here in America, of course, but globally. Um, a family that crosses every boundary that culture would attempt to construct for us. The vision of the church is a diversified family that crosses over racial lines, socioeconomic lines, gender lines, and so yes, this would include even political lines. That's the vision for the church. It's, it's not just that we would be a family that crosses these boundaries. I think more specifically, the vision for the church is that 
we would be a family for whom wealth, in a manner of speaking, a family for whom these boundaries no longer exist. Now, let me qualify that a little bit. What I mean is um, that these differences would no longer be divisions. It's not that we pretend that we're all the same. In fact, I think just the opposite. I think the real juice, the real mustard, the real um, wonder of the multi-ethnic, um, diverse body of Christ is precisely in our diversity that, that each um, segment brings together its beauty, its uniqueness, its contribution to the overall health and vitality of the church. So it's, it's not to say that we ignore these differences. It is to say quite the opposite. We see these differences and we celebrate them. That's the vision for the church. And by the way, um, if that is kind of news for you, um, I would simply refer you to the book of Acts. That's what the book of Acts is all about. That's what the letters of the Apostle Paul are all about. The, the sub-theme within all of the letters of the Apostle Paul, and from time to time spelled out explicitly, is that Paul is working to build these alternative societies within the broader society, uh, bringing together this diversified, um, uh, diversified multicultural alternative society. Uh, and the, the key division that Paul is working with explicitly is the Jew and Gentile. Um, but this is emblematic of what the church actually is. And so the vision for the church is that we are by design, at least, we don't always pull this off. I'm saying, I'm saying what, the, what, the, what the mission is, what the mandate is, uh, and we could have a cup of coffee and talk together about how well we're doing um, or not at fulfilling this. But nevertheless, the vision is that we are a diverse family of people who transcend these typical cultural boundaries and who instead stand as a billboard, really, to the surrounding world that the forces of division have been defeated by the victory of Christ. And now all that remains for people in all of our diversity is to come together under the shared loving and liberating rule of King Jesus. So that's, that's the idea. That's what the church is. And so we've said before, um, we can say that the church then is really, we could draw an analogy, the church is like a pleasant party, right? Like a pleasant party where all these different people come together and you have pleasant conversation and all that. And, and, and anybody, we all know that if you want to have a pleasant gathering, uh, there's two things that you don't talk about. What are the two things that you don't talk about if you want to have a pleasant party? You don't talk about religion. You don't talk about politics, right? And so today, I just want to say we're going to violate both of those rules. So today, we're going to be talking about both um, religion and politics. And I just want to say, um, don't be nervous. Um, you, can, you can relax. You are among friends. You're safe here. You can take a deep breath. I can promise you this isn't going to hurt uh, a bit. Uh, <laughs> that's funny. It's an election season. And I just made a promise, right? Anybody get the irony there? Okay. So, so, so I thought about this for a little bit before we get into this, um, uh, this passage that we're going to kind of have as our center point. I thought about this and I thought, you know, okay, Kenyon, so 
what is your agenda with this, you know, sermon? Um, and I can't answer that question. I don't really know. I don't really know how to pinpoint um, my agenda, at least not in a simplified way. And so I said that to say that I'm not going to state an agenda specifically right now. I want us to study this passage, and I'm going to give you some reflection on it. Um, and then maybe, maybe at the end, we'll be able to circle around and say, okay, if there's a single takeaway from all that, um, what is it? So, uh, so there's that. Okay, so let's look at Mark chapter 12, um, beginning with verse 13. If you have your Bible, you can take it out or turn it on um, and uh, follow along here. Let's look at this passage. It'll be familiar to many of you. Here you go, Mark 12. Later, they sent uh, some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention uh, to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Wow, those are really sweet words, right? So here's the question. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius coin and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this? And whose inscription? Well, it's Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to him, and give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And then Mark's closing comment, they were amazed at him. That's kind of a loaded word, amazed. That can be amazed like, wow, that's so delightful. Or that can be amazed like, you know what I mean? It can be, there can be potentially at least a negative connotation. Okay, so let's go back and slow down. Um, the mention here of Pharisees and Herodians, this group that approaches Jesus with this question intended to be a trap for him, um, is specifically uh, revealed to us as a collaboration of Pharisees and Herodians. Who are these people and what do we know about them? Well, we know a lot more about the Pharisees. Um, this is a, a sect within Judaism. Uh, they were intense about following the law. I mean, to the T. They were, the Pharisees as a group were serious, serious, serious about following the law. And it's important to know that the Pharisees had a specific agenda, a specific reason for their meticulous devotion to understanding the law, and we're talking as given by Moses uh, primarily, um, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and so on. They had a specific reason for that. Their belief is that um, they could and would bring about the kingdom of God uh, through following the law. Their idea was if we, and if we, can, and if we can get all of Israel, all of our fellow oppressed Israelites to meticulously follow the law, then this will mm, 
what do you say? I mean, I'm sure they wouldn't have said it this way, but I'm going to say. The idea would be that if, if we can get uh, at least a plurality of Israel meticulously following the law, then this will more or less coax God <laughs> into bringing about the kingdom of God on earth, namely liberation of the Jewish people from Roman oppression. So their agenda, and this is critically important, the agenda of the Pharisees was to bring about, uh, we could say the kingdom of God, but you know, it's a political agenda. Their agenda is that they are attempting to leverage their righteousness for a political outcome. That's to bring this into our conversation today. That's the Pharisees. Um, and, and then there's a mention here of the Herodians. And now we don't know much about um, the Herodians. There's no mention of the Herodians in history outside of the New Testament. Um, and so what we have is, is, you know, more or less, I guess we could say it's admittedly conjecture. But let's just say, let's just, you know, acknowledge that for Mark, at least, the Herodians are an identifiable group within uh, Judaism. And so we can just take, you know, as their name suggests, this is a group who is in support of Herod. Um, most likely in the sense of somehow placing their very Jewish hopes into Herod. That's what Herod himself claimed, right? Herod claimed to be the king of the Jews. And so here you have a subset of Judaism who are identified as the Herodians, implication, I guess, stated in the broadest, most general sense, that this is a group of Jewish people who are placing their hopes in the leadership of Herod. Maybe, maybe, just maybe. Their idea is that, well, at least... At least if Herod were the supreme, and Herod is a ruler under the auspices of Rome, right? So, but maybe their idea is that, well, at least we would be better off if we could, you know, more or less get rid of Rome and have Herod be our supreme ruler. Maybe, maybe that was their idea. So, but at a minimum, some way, shape, or form, these are Jewish people who are loyal to Herod. So here's what we have. We have Two political groups, two political bodies, subsets within Judaism, uh, both of whom, in some way, shape, or form, we could say, both of whom want to see the arrival of a preferred political reality for Israel. And they're going about it in different ways. The Pharisees, through the enactment of meticulous righteousness, the, the idea of being, being, bringing about the kingdom of God, uh, and then this other subgroup of Jewish people, Herodians, they're seeking to bring about a better reality for Israel through loyalty to Herod. So two political subgroups, uh, two subgroups within Judaism, both of whom have ultimately a political agenda. And they're drawing Jesus into, um, well, let's just say into a controversy with this question. Now, we have to remember um, that in this case, in case for Jesus, uh, the stakes in this conversation are extremely high, far higher stakes than any political conversation that we might be involved in. 
uh, today. This political question for Jesus actually has lethal consequences. Um, if, for example, Jesus comes, comes out and flatly denounces Caesar, well, that's treason against Caesar and grounds for prosecution and certain death. Uh, if Jesus comes out and totally supports Caesar, then that's tantamount to him turning in his rabbi card, right? You can't, you can't be an authentic Jewish rabbi um, and uh, speak to support for, or advocate for support for Caesar. So the stakes are high, much higher than any political question that we would face. But to put the question, you know, despite all that difference in the stakes, to put the question in our terminology, in our vernacular, in certainly in our conversation for today, basically the question is, Jesus, how should we vote? <laughs> um, you've seen the little bracelets, at least back in the day, WWJD, those bracelets, what would Jesus do? This is WWJV. <laughs> who, who, how, who would Jesus vote for? WWJVF, right? Anyway. WWJV, who, how, what would Jesus vote? There we go. Um, and again, within our conversation today, if you put the question like that, Jesus, how do we vote? You know, as well as I do, that within our current cultural conversation, there are Christians on all sides of that question who claim to have the high ground, right? Um, not only who claim to have the high ground, but who claim to have a Bible verse, right? We know how Jesus would vote because we have a Bible verse, right? Um, you know, we, there's one group that'll say, we know how Jesus would vote because the Bible says if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. So we have a Bible verse to support our political ideology. But then along comes another one and says, uh, yeah, but we know that Jesus wouldn't vote that way. We know that he would date... Uh, vote differently because Jesus commands that we take care of the poor, the orphan, the widow, and even the alien or the undocumented, as we prefer to say today. And in addition to that, we know for sure that Jesus would vote this way because Jesus was on earth. When Jesus was on earth, he gave out free health care like crazy. So we know exactly how Jesus would vote. <laughs> And then, do we still have a Green Party? Is that still a thing, right? So there's, there's a group that would come in and say, wait, 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 wait. We know exactly how Jesus would vote because God is the creator of not only heaven but of earth. And he has charged us with the responsibility for taking care of the earth. And so we know that Jesus would vote with us, you know, the Green Party. No, then the Libertarian might step in and say, no, we know how Jesus uh, would vote because we have what is everybody's second favorite verse, second only to John 3.16, that being our second favorite verse, uh, the truth will set you free. And so we know that the ultimate ideal is freedom, so the Libertarian would say. And so it goes round and round and round. Now, all of that is, you know, kind of fun and maybe a little bit silly, but this silly exercise tells us something important already. And if, if you are taking notes or if you have the notes um, for this, I want to go now through just kind of a set of bullet points, and, and this is why I couldn't say what my agenda is, because this is not a single thing. This is several uh, 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 realizations that flow out from what we have so far. 
And the first thing is this. The Bible, as it turns out, is in fact not a handbook for U.S. politics. It's just not. Um, just back up. Our Bible, our sacred texts emerge from a collection of cultures who were either under the tyrannical rule of foreign oppressors, depending on which, you know, ancient document you draw from, or who were practicing monarchies. <laughs> and we are a modern, contemporary, liberal democracy. Um, and so just based on the form of government from which these ancient texts emerge, uh, there is, let's just say, there is not a precise fit. And so there's a reason um, that the Bible can't be crammed into the box of a single United States political party platform. And it's this. There is no modern-day United States political party that has the heart and or the agenda of God. That is simply not the concern of politics. It is simply not. And we're going to unpack that a little bit as we proceed. And for these reasons then, here's the third kind of thought in this flow. It is to be expected that sincere Jesus-following Christians are going to see U.S. politics differently and are therefore going to vote differently. It is to be expected, everybody. It is never expected that all of us are going to think in lockstep. That would actually mean, ironically, that somebody is not thinking biblically <laughs> because the, the scriptures themselves provide just, and I've just given kind of a simple fun, but it's meant to be um, instructive that from the scriptures themselves, there is a broad base of perspectives that we can draw from, uh, think, draw thinking from and apply to the modern political conversation. But perhaps more important than any of that, um, there's this. And that is, and this is poorly stated, um, but I got to get it out somehow. Um, Jesus, the teachings of Christ, the mission and ministry of Christ, can never be leveraged by politics to serve the agenda of politics. And I want to explain, I want to explain that. Um, first of all, you could go back, like, look at the big picture of history. It's been tried over and over again. Um, but every time in history, whenever the church has gotten cozy with government, it has been the government that has polluted the church <laughs> rather than the church having reformed um, the government. It's, it's never worked out historically. And... Again, we could have a cup of coffee and, and discuss this, but even more contemporary attempts to co-opt the church for political purposes in our own culture demonstrate what is arguably a similar pattern. Stanley Harawas, a great, um, he's a great scholar. I think he's a Duke guy. Um, 
somebody check me on that, Stanley Harris, he, one of his great lines, he says, you know, um, Americans set out to make America Christian and ended up making Christianity American. <laughs> um, and, he meant, and he means that to be an unfortunate outcome. Um, but let me just say it like this. The agenda of the church is today what it has always been since that first Easter, and that is, as stated in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done. That's the agenda of the church, complete with the subversive effect that comes along with the kingdom of God as taught and embodied by Jesus. This subversive ethic of self-emptying service as the highest form of power. See, let me just say it like this. The two, if, if you could boil it down to two, the two primary institutions of our culture are the economy and politics. And in summary form, we could say this. The economy is about the acquisition of wealth. And politics is about the acquisition of power and the wielding of power. So the economy is about wealth, and, the, and politics is about power. Well, here's the thing. The kingdom of God is a standing critique of both wealth and power as a means of human, human flourishing. That's what Jesus' ministry is about. Jesus' ministry is a standing critique of the ideology that says wealth and power are the means of bringing about human flourishing. To all of that, Jesus says, no, there is a better way. And so, truly, this agenda of ours, it cannot be hijacked by a political party. They are at odds with one another in this very profound and fundamental way. Politics is about the acquisition and wielding of power. The kingdom of God is about self-emptying service as the highest form of power. And so, we could say it this way. Part of being the people of God on earth includes what we might call retaining our prophetic edge. What does that mean? Well, that means that from time to time, for the sake of our world, sometimes we speak against our world's systems of power. That's the prophetic edge. And if you need a, an embodied example of that in modern terms, um, I submit to you Martin Luther King Jr. That's, that's who he was. For the sake of our society, he spoke against our society. That's a part of what it means to be the church in all places, at all times, in all cultures. And so when you have been co-opted by a political agenda, you then forfeit your ability to sometimes speak against uh, your own culture for the sake of your culture. And so we're here for people. We're here for flourishing, not for politics, not for the accumulation game. We're here for human flourishing. And so, again, the example of Christ. Jesus didn't come because he had a, a point to make. He came because he had a people to mend. And sometimes 
in order to mend people. It requires, not sometimes, constantly, we could say. This agenda requires a critique, continual critique, of the systems and structures of the broader culture. That's our mission, to heal people. And so this question then, this WWJV question, it's not such a simple question. It's not. I don't mean to suggest that at all. It's not a simple question. So, back to the story. The question comes to Jesus. Whose image is on this coin? Now, that question would ring out, not just in the ears, but in the heads, in the imaginations uh, of Jesus' hearers. It would ring out like a giant gong because the moment they hear the word image, their minds would race throughout their thoroughly biblical imaginations and they would, where have I heard that word before? Where do I identify that word? And you can probably answer that question. In the Bible, where is the first instance where we encounter this word image? Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. And so from the very beginning, we understand that humanity is created in the image of God, in the likeness of God, um, commissioned with the mandate to bring about God's loving and wise rule throughout all of creation. That's the Genesis 1 narrative. And then later, our, again, our, our minds would continue to race through our biblical imagination, and we would come again to this same word in Exodus 20, just after the, you know, uh, escape from Egypt. God rescues his people out of, uh, out of Egypt, Israel, rescues Israel um, out of Egypt. They go through the Red Sea, out into the wilderness, and we encounter this word again, Exodus 20. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth below or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And so with this simple question, whose image is on this coin then, Jesus brings into the conversation these two realities front and center. What two realities? People are created in the image of God, and to make an image is, in the old prophetic way of speaking, it is idolatry. <laughs> and so this question of Jesus, this question doesn't stop with just this question. It is a question that reverberates into other questions. It's a question whose image is on this coin. Well, the surface answer is the answer that they give. Caesar's image. Well, then how is this not an instance of the idolatry spoken of in Exodus 20? And with that, the Herodians are confronted, challenged, and rebuked. And still this question is rippling even beyond that with that simple question, whose image is on this coin, because of the immediate 
mental reference of Genesis 1, the next question where this ripples is, whose image is on you? Well, here's what we see for starters. When it comes to the question of allegiances, God will have no rivals. So Jesus says, give God what belongs to God. How do we know what belongs to what? By the image it bears. So Jesus says, this coin has Caesar's image on it. Give it to Caesar. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. What is it that belongs to God based on the question of image bearing? People. People belong to God. Everything belongs to God. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. What does it mean to give God your life. Now that's a question. That's the question that Jesus is bringing to the table in this moment. So I just want to say we have a profound irony here. Um, this is a passage of scripture and you may be aware of this particular interpretation for this passage of scripture. Um, this story has been interpreted as a statement by Jesus um, essentially saying that faith and politics can be split apart um, into separate aspects of life. And so that, that interpretation goes along the lines of, well, you know, Jesus said give, give Caesar what's Caesar's and give God what's God's. And so our spiritual life is devotion to God. And then we have our political life, and we can effectively separate these two parts out and split these two arenas of life into separate spheres. And so, you know, Shazam, the problem is solved. Um, and in many ways, I would say this is, this is probably the most common understanding of this passage. And I just want to say that Jesus simply would not recognize that way of thinking. He simply would not recognize a way of thinking about life that can be separated into silos like that. Jesus is saying no such thing. In fact, he's saying exactly the opposite. See, the, the, this, more, um, this more kind of contemporary and common way of interpreting this, this passage assumes that faith and politics can be separated, but in fact, faith and politics are neither uh, separate, nor are they equal. There is a very common idea in our culture that church and state uh, both can and should exist in separate compartments of life. They do not. Jesus would not recognize that kind of thinking. The very language of separation of church and state is only possible when church is misunderstood. <laughs> Church is the people of God through Christ. We are the church always in every aspect of our lives. When we're together worshiping, we're the church. When we're on live stream, we're the church. When we're out serving in the community, we're the church. I must have said something that sounded like, hey, Siri, 
when we're in the voting booth, we're the church, right? Um, when the subject of U.S. politics comes up at work, we are the church of Jesus Christ. When I post on social media, I am the church. I am the body of Christ. We are tasked with sharing in and carrying forward the mission of Christ. Always, always, always for people. So, next question then. This, so that's the question, whose image is on the coin, reverberates into this second question, whose image is on you? Now, third question, whose image is on them? Whose image is on the other? And the answer is God's image. God's image is on them. God's image is on the other. God's image is on the political other. God's image is on the social other. That's what I'm trying to get at. Well then, render to God what is God's. Listen, every single person bears the image of God and is to be honored as such. And this is where, and you guys know, you know, I don't need to dip into this with you, but for those other people, who need to hear this kind of stuff. Sometimes our contemporary conversation in the political le- arena becomes so coarse and so severe to the point where we are dehumanizing the other. Um, everybody, this cannot be so. Every single person, even the political other, bears the image of God. Um, and so I guess if I could say, um, my aim today, my real aim, it would be this right here, this part of this conversation. Um, did you know that on the Jewish feast day of Yom Kippur, part of the Jewish liturgy is that they read the book of Jonah. Yom Kippur, the book of Jonah. What's going on there? Well, Yom Kippur, we call it the Day of Atonement. I'm not so sure that's the best translation because it depends on what you understand the word atonement to mean. But in Jewish culture, it's a day of repentance. It's a day of turning to God, returning to God. That's what Yom Kippur is all about, a day of repentance, returning to God. What does the book of Jonah have to do with that? Well, here's the deal. Jonah is a good, solid, loyal Jewish prophet who is sent by God with a message of repentance to, well, the political other, to those who are despised by Israel, to those who at least presumably despise Israel in return. It's a reciprocal you know, the mutual despising <laughs> between Jonah's culture and the culture that he is sent to. So Jonah is sent by God to the political other with a message which is ultimately 
a message of God's mercy and compassion to the other, to the foreigner. And of course, the story plays out and it's fascinating. And there's the, the belly of the fish and, you know, he's spit out on the shore and he finally go. I mean, it's a great story. But the, the core is, this is the heart of God in favor of the political other. That's what Jonah is about. So, so, in Jewish liturgy, we're going to have a feast day of repentance and turning to God. And we're going to study the book of Jonah. What's the implication? Well, the implication is, is that to authentically turn to God is to turn toward the other with compassion. These are one and the same. This is the theme throughout the story of Israel. It's the reason the ancient prophets basically have two messages. Love God. Love people. Worship God rightly and do justice toward people, including the political other. And so... In conclusion, then, just our last couple of minutes, I have some questions for you, um, some election reflections. <laughs> and these are questions not necessarily, again, to, to answer, like explicitly answer, but more to reflect upon. So here's some, here's some questions just to kind of provoke your thinking. Uh, question number one. How will I respond if my preferred candidate, and here I'm thinking about the presidential election, if my preferred candidate is not elected? How will I respond? Where will I be, right, like in, in myself? Um, second question, am I willing to sacrifice relational influence for the sake of political advocacy. You see what I mean? See what we're getting at there? Um, here's a third question. Can I or am I able to offer critique of my own preferred candidate or party? Right? Like I have a way of thinking about this particular candidate or this particular party, which I prefer, am I able to offer critique? Am I able to hear the critique of others, right, as legitimate? Um, here's another question. Where is my emotional intensity focused? Right, like this can be, this can be like a personal barometer, you know, um, where, where, where is my emotional intensity, right? Like sometimes, you know, there are some people, again, not, nobody here or on our live stream, but some of those other people, you can, you can be in, in conversation about all kinds of, you know, weighty issues in life, and the demeanor is calm and reflective and, you know, thoughtful or whatever. And then when the subject of politics comes up, I mean, it's edgy and sometimes anger and, you know, all that. So, so this can be, 
an important barometer to just, you know, just to say, hey, man, something may be out of proportion here. Um, and then next question, this is a different way of asking the same thing. Am I able to sincerely acknowledge the good ideas on the other side? Can I admit, can I acknowledge that the other side has good ideas? Um, it can be a symptom of blind ideology to simply refuse to admit or acknowledge or see or identify um, the legitimate and good ideas on the other side. And, and this, this idea of ideology, listen, liberal democracy Liberal democracy depends upon the balancing of the interests of the individual and the interests of the community. That's how the common good is discovered, through balancing the interests of the individual and of the whole. It is necessarily a balance. Um, and so, you know, again, I mean, if you, if, you, if you take one or the other without recognizing the balance, you're going to end up in something other than the common good. Right? If, if everyone simply uh, pursues their own individual interests, then there's going to be a breakdown of the common good. And many, many, many are going to be uh, left in the lurch. On the other hand, if everyone pursues uh, the interests of, of the whole, then you're going to end up with you know, something unfortunate on the other side, something probably that wouldn't no would no longer be liberty. And so th it is it is, there is a, an essential... Um, necessary balance between the two. We require, in order for us to achieve and maintain the common good over the long haul, it is necessary for us to balance the interest of the individual and the interest of the community. And so, um, and so this is simply to say, can I acknowledge the good ideas on the other side? Uh, and then finally, where does my hope focus. When I think about the problem in my own community, in my own culture, where does my hope lie in seeing those problems be solved? I hope we can solve hunger. I hope we can solve poverty. I hope we can solve violence. I hope we can solve illiteracy. I hope we can solve terrorism, both foreign and Domestic. Here's the question. When I think about those problems, where does my fundamental hope lie? Of course, there's a role for good government, but where is my ultimate hope? And so for us, what we're saying, for us meaning us Jesus followers, what we're saying is that our ultimate hope in the end doesn't rest in any political ideology. Our ultimate hope lies in Christ himself, the embodied Jesus throughout our culture, that's where our hope lies. Anything else would be to turn uh, and place our ultimate hope in something inferior, which again, those ancient prophets called idolatry, and that's stinging language, and yet that may be why they chose it. Is everybody tracking? So this would be a great time to, you know, pour a cup of coffee and just hash this out and talk about it. And I hope that you will with friends, with family members. Um, and as we've talked, several of us have had this conversation lately, um, social media.
I mean, just, just, can we just commit to be a voice of healing, a voice of unity, a voice of mutual respect? Can we, can we commit to being publicly, whether that's social media or work or whatever, just, just decide, I want to be a voice who honors the other, right? Um, without being preachy and heavy-handed and all that, just be a voice of honoring the other. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we love you. We're grateful to you.